I have a confession to make. I never took driver's ed. Um, I'm one of the rare few who renewed my permit. Uh, I don't know what the, the rules or the laws are now when it comes to getting your license, but decades ago, which I can say, when I was learning how to drive, um, you, got your, you could get your permit at 15 uh, and then drive with someone who knew how to drive, had a license. And then uh, when you were 16, if you could prove that you passed driver's ed, you could get your license. Or you could wait till you were 18 and then you didn't have to take driver's ed. My parents offered to take the money that they would have spent on insurance, uh, adding me to their insurance if I had a license, and put that into my college fund. And I didn't have a lot of reason to be driving in high school for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of which was that we only had one car that was a 78 Honda Civic hatchback. (laughs) Those of you who know, know. Uh, Yeah, great car, uh, but not a cool car. Anyways, uh, I decided to wait till I was 18. And, um, you know, dri- so driver's ed teaches you in two ways, right? Uh, we, we, we sang, I want to know you. And there, there's two different ways of knowing, right? There's knowing about something, uh, which is the first part of driver's ed, where you learn the rules of the road and you take exams and you read books uh, and you learn what a stop sign is and things like that. Uh, and then there's the experiential knowing, which is at least my understanding, since I never took it, the second part of driver's ed, where you're driving and the instructor's next to you and they've got the master brake in case you take a wrong turn or go too fast. Um, And then when you go to get your license, which I did eventually at 18, right? those are the two parts of the test. You're tested on, do you know about driving? There's a written test. And one of my, it it was on a computer when I took it, uh, and one of the questions was a straight-up photograph of a stop sign with the question, what sign is this? And if you know a stop sign, you know that it's written, stop. <laughs> that was, uh, I aced that part of the test. Uh, and the second part of the driver's test is the experiential kind, right? The, do, you, do you actually know how to drive a car? Do you have the experience necessary to drive a car? And when I took my test, after I turned 18, I was back from college on winter break, and Spokane had just received about a foot of snow. And I show up in my 78 Honda Civic, smaller than a V-Dub bug. And the driver instructor comes out, and he's like, all right, we're going to do a lap and call it good. And so my, uh, my exam was driving out of the parking lot, doing four right turns around the block, taking a left turn back into the parking lot. Done. I aced that part of the exam, too. Um, so there's this sense, right, that knowledge, the way that we learn things, the way that we know things, uh, there's, there's a knowledge about something, but then there's this experiential knowledge of something. The, the New Testament, when it, or the, the Old Testament, excuse me, when it speaks of knowledge, it's often in a relational way, right? It's the experiential aspect of knowledge. For example, Abraham knew Sarah, and she conceived a child, right? So in what ways did they know each other? Uh, right? It's this relational, intimate way. So Paul, uh, in this passage from Ephesians that we're looking at today, is talking about knowing Christ. Not necessarily knowing about Christ. Uh, he spent the first half of uh, Ephesians 1 telling us about Christ, casting this big, beautiful vision for who Christ is and who we are as those who are in Christ. 
But then he transitions to a prayer for the church in Ephesus, a prayer for the Ephesians, that they would know Christ, that their, that their knowledge would not simply remain in the knowledge about Christ, that it wouldn't simply be a, a, an acknowledgement of, oh, I know this to be true about Christ, but it would be experiential, that they would know Christ more and more. Especially the power of Christ, as has already been mentioned this morning. We're going to look at that. So, uh, let's look at Ephesians 1. We're going to start in verse 15 and read through the end of the chapter. It will be on the screen, and if you want to open your Bibles or your phones or however you are going to look at it. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I want to read those last two verses in the message translation. i got to find my spot again here. The last two verses in the message are this. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. No, the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. That is an epic vision for the church, yes? We've been looking, uh, we're talking about Ephesians, that it's, it's a book that's divided nicely in half, where uh, the first three chapters are uh, this expounding of the beauty of the gospel and really oriented on helping us understand our identity, that our identity is rooted in Christ. And then the second half of the book spends time looking at, well, okay, how do we live that out, right? What does that look like lived in our the experience of our lives? But this first half here is all about rooting our identity in Christ, so in the first part, the part that we have just been preaching on the last two weeks, uh, Paul uses the phrase in Christ about 11 times, in Christ, through Christ, in him, uh, just wanting to hammer home. Uh, this is God's plan, right? God's plan has been to root us in Christ. We are in Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the church. This is kind of this progression of our identity. As those individuals who are rooted in Christ together, we form the body of Christ. We are the church. 
And we just finished uh, our new members class. A number of you were, were in it, and, and many of you have gone through our, our new members class, what we often call our mutual commitment seminar. We, we think of membership as a mutual commitment we make to each other. And we talk about what it looks like for us to be the church together in this class. And we talk about our connection to the Christian Reformed Church, this denomination that we're a part of, and some of the roots of our particular uh, particular nuances of the Christian faith that we believe coming from the Reformed tradition. Uh, we talk about what it means to be a church here in Greenwood, that we believe that it's not an accident that God has planted us here in this neighborhood and that we have invested a lot of time and money and energy and love in loving this neighborhood through the green bean, through this coffee shop that we run. But as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was like, man, we, I'm not sure that in our class we've set the vision as grandly as Paul does here for what the church is, right? That it's the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all things. That's what you're joining when you join the church. No big deal, right? So Christ was God incarnate, is God incarnate. God in the flesh, right? The church, in some ways, is Christ incarnate. We're the body of Christ. And this message translation here of these last two verses really gets at this sense that the church is the primary way that Christ's power is exhibited and on display in the world. Clearly, the church is broken because it's filled with people, and we're broken. We are not the Savior. The church is not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. But Mark Roberts, who's a, um, a guy I've gotten to know at Fuller, he says it this way. The, the church is, in some way, the vehicle and container for all God is doing in the universe. The church is, in some way, the vehicle and container for all that God is doing in the universe. Now, we have to remind ourselves here that when we're talking about the church, we're not talking about just the organization that is the church, right? Just, we're talking about the people, you, me, us, the community, that certainly extends beyond these walls to Bethany and folks gathered over at United Evangelical Free this morning and the church in Seattle, the church around the world. But how does that, how does that strike you, that notion that the church is the vehicle and container for all that God is doing in the world? Maybe that excites you and, and gives you some passion, some fire for, uh, to, to participate in what God is doing in the world. Maybe it leaves you bewildered at why God didn't have a better plan. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe it's almost frightening, given previous experiences in the church. Um, I know that a number of you, uh, I've had the privilege to hear some of your story, to know that you are here at Sanctuary because you're hoping we can live into our name. Uh, you've had an experience in the church or with church leaders in the past that have been hurtful. And, uh, and you're hoping that this can be a, a safe place, a, a real sanctuary. And so to think of the church as the vehicle and container for all that God is doing in the universe can be a bit of a stretch, maybe. Hard to imagine, given your experience in the church previously. I'm glad you're here. Let me say that. 
And my prayer is that, that this particular expression of the church can be that safe place, uh, a place uh, of healing. I, I trust that it is that for us. Not because we're so great, or I'm so great, or some are so great, or Randy's so great, but because Jesus is the head of his church, right? Because he's the one that, that gathers us together, and he's the one who gives us his power. And I think there's far too many examples, unfortunately, of leaders both in the church and certainly outside of the church, but uh, who have misunderstood or abused this power or their, this, their understanding of the power that they have, right? They've forgotten that whatever power they have is power that comes from Jesus, from Christ. And the way that Jesus uses his power is vastly different from the way that the world views power. It's completely upside down. I've started at the, the back end of this passage, talking about the church. I'm actually going to kind of, we're going to work our way backwards <laughs> through the passage. Paul has this grand vision of the church, which comes immediately after. He spends uh, about half this prayer just marveling at the incredible power that Christ has that is available to us, to the church. And again, as we look at all of this power, we have to remember whose power it is he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus' power given to the church. Uh, And he does one of these things that only Paul can do where he links uh, a bunch of superlatives together and he calls it Christ's incomparably great power for those who believe. And he prays that these young Christians in Ephesus would know it in an experiential way, that they would experience and know this resurrection death-conquering, ascending to God's right hand, all things under his power, under his authority, kind of power. We've heard uh, a great description of the way that Jesus uses and views power, read earlier by Joey from Philippians 2. It's one of the most beautiful, poetic descriptions of Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, was made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the way that Christ uses and employs his power in the way that he calls the church who he's filling with his power to use the power that they've been given. I can't, sorry, you can't read just half. I have to finish this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. Man. So, when we hear Paul praying for this young church, that they would be filled with wisdom, with insight, and with power, we have to remember not only whose power he's talking about, he's talking about Christ's power and the way that Jesus used that power, but also where Paul is writing from and who he's writing to. Paul is writing this from prison, right? How can you write about power and being filled with this resurrection, death-defying power 
when you're locked up in the least powerful position of all, in prison? Well, it must be because the power that he's talking about does not necessarily equate with circumstance, right? Summer was speaking about that last week. And I think that that becomes very obvious. It's, it's just such a good reminder for me whenever I'm reading these letters from Paul to remember where he's writing them from. That becomes very instructive for me, challenging for me, as I think about these incredible things that he's writing from prison to a church that was very young, uh, not at all in a position of power or cultural influence in the city that they were in, uh, that we find out later in, in Revelation that there, it's a church that experienced great persecution. This is the author and the recipient of this prayer that they would know and experience the power of Christ. I think that one of the ways the power of Christ works its way out in our lives and in the life of the church uh, is that it, it does so in hidden ways. It does so in interior ways in our hearts, uh, which is not how we're accustomed to thinking about power, right? Power is seen, it's visible, it's, it's, uh, you can point to it. <laughs> but part of the upside-down nature of the way that Christ's power is at work within us is that it starts interior, it starts inside. And then, eventually, it works its way out right? Uh, this is the image of, you, you will know a tree by its fruit, Jesus says. I'm, I'm not an arborist. There are probably some people who can tell a tree before the fruit comes, but for me, uh, I, I couldn't tell you the difference between a pear tree and an apple tree. But there's a difference, and you know it once it's harvest season and the fruit is there. And that imagery that Jesus uses is very applicable here, where we acknowledge that there is a power at work inside of us that is transforming us and changing us in often hidden ways, ways that are not immediately obvious. But we know it eventually when we see the fruit that's born in our lives of this interior work that God is doing in us. Right? Paul uses the imagery of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Did I already say that one? Self-control. Um, right? These are not flashy exhibitions of power the way that our culture and our world uh, often thinks of power. These are, are fruits of the Spirit born out of the hidden work of Christ in our hearts. I don't, uh, I don't often feel very powerful. I don't know how all this talk about power strikes you. Um, maybe on rare occasion, right? Maybe there's, there's some moments where I'm able to respond to my kids more patiently than is natural to me. <laughs> Those are moments where I feel that sense of Christ's power at work within me. Or maybe there's a temptation that rises up and by God's grace and because he's working in my life, I find that I'm able to resist that temptation. That's an evidence of Christ's power in me. But by and large, uh, I don't know that I feel powerful as I live my life. 
I was uh, reflecting with a friend recently that I think that the uh, predominant sense that I have that I that I see also in in many of the lives around me is um, is a sense of survival that that that's the primary way we are walking through life is we're surviving or we're kind of moving just sort of from one thing to the next and uh, and I don't believe that that is what Jesus meant when he said I've come to give you life I've come to give you life uh, and just enough so that you get by right no that's not what he says I've come to give you life life abundant that's there's power there right do you hear the power that's behind that So I hear this, I hear Paul praying for this church, right? And I think, I don't, I'm not experiencing that. At least not in the way that he seems to understand it and get it, writing from prison. But the grace that I hear in this passage, and I hope the grace that we can leave this morning with, is understanding that Paul's praying for these people. I can pray for this. I can ask for this and trust that this is something that God desires to give. This is a prayer that God desires to answer in our lives. A prayer for wisdom, for practical knowledge of of how to live life well. Prayer for insight, growing in knowledge. Prayer for revelation, hearing from God through his word, through conversations. And a prayer to experience this resurrection power of Christ in my life and in our lives. The grace is that, just like Paul, I can ask for that. Even at times when I don't feel like I'm experiencing it presently. And perhaps the first step towards this is simply identifying a longing for that. Identifying a desire that when we hear Paul describe this, this, this power that, that was evidenced in Christ's life that Christ wants to fill his church with, that we can say, oh, I want that. I want that. God, give me that. Help me, Lord. <laughs> give me that power. If there's any practical application from this passage this morning, I hope that that's where it starts. Identifying that longing for Christ's power to be at work within us and then asking for it praying for each other as well as for ourselves, that we would know it, not simply in that knowing about it, being able to describe it, but experiencing it in our lives so that in our relationships, patience and grace are extended when that feels like it's truly beyond us. When it would be easier to simply write people off, we actually start to seek reconciliation. That would be evidence of Christ's power at work within us. Right? When we feel fearful to, to own our faith uh, in public or in a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor, uh, that, that there's a step towards boldness of saying, I, I found a lot of hope in Jesus and just bearing witness to what Christ has done for us. That, that sounds to me like the power of Christ at work in us in those subtle hidden ways that bit by bit, bears fruit and is seen. So let's do that. Before we come to celebrate communion this morning, let's take some time.
to confess, to, to be honest before the Lord, uh, but to ask, to ask for the very things that Paul prays for this young church in Ephesus, that, that we can join Paul in praying for this church here, for us, for wisdom, for insight, and for this experience of Christ's power. Let's pray together. Lord, we have a complicated relationship with power. And there are all kinds of examples in our own lives and in the world around us where it is messed up and used to hurt people. And maybe the place to begin is by acknowledging before you and confessing before you the times and the places and the ways in which we have abused the power that we've had. Would you give us such a beautiful vision of the way that Christ used his power and authority to serve others, to spend his life and to spend his power in order to bless others, in order to bring humanity and God back together again. Forgive us, Lord. And fill us with your spirit and with your spirit's power. That we would know and experience a strength that does not come from having our lives together and just sort of managing things really well. But that is simply a gift from you, grace from you. Strength that is beyond our own strength. Love that is beyond our own ability to love. Lord, we ask because we're dependent on you for it. And we also ask, God, for practical wisdom. For decisions that need to be made. You say through James that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should simply ask for it, and you will give it. And so we ask. Thank you, God, that we do not follow you alone, but we follow you in community in this church, in your church that you are filling with your power, that you are filling with yourself. Continue to grow our vision of what it is to be your church here on earth. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the head of this church.